We are in Acts chapter 3. If you'll turn there. We have come as far as verse 12. We're watching this brand new church with all of its zeal and uh, all of its discovery, finding out its identity, who it is in a very Jewish world. And it tells us there that uh, Peter, you know, he he speaks to the crowds that were there on Pentecost. 3,000 souls are saved. Imagine having that church overnight. You know, what do you do? You know, and they're meeting in no doubt Solomon's portico in the temple. There wasn't a place large enough for them to meet, but they met house to house. They broke bread. It says they abode steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer, some of the most important ingredients for any church in any age. Those things could never be compromised. And they had favor with all men, the Lord adding to the church daily such as should be saved. If the Lord doesn't add a person to the church, they're not added to the church. It's something that he does, and he uses different instruments to do it, but he does that. And it says that Peter and John were going up to the temple, third hour, in the afternoon, time of the evening sacrifice, three o'clock in the afternoon to pray. Uh, these guys are going to the temple to pray. And again, last week we mentioned, you know, it is private prayer that will bring you to public prayer. If you're not praying privately, you won't have any interest in gathering publicly to pray. But they're on their way up there. And they come to the gate beautifuls described uh, there before the court of women, 14 steps up to the court of women. And there's a gate there. And again, Josephus describes it, 45 foot tall. The two gates were 22 and a half foot wide, each gate, which made a perfect square. They were made of Corinthian bronze, and part of them were covered with gold, and part of them were covered with silver. And they were more expensive than the pure gold gates because of the workmanship that was in them and the beauty of them. So it's called the gate beautiful. This man, at least 40 years old, we find out, laying there, had been begging for years. That was his existence. And uh, the Lord probably had walked by him many times and not did anything with him. Probably he thought more than once, oh yeah, the healer from Nazareth does me a lot of good. You know, walking by here, never paying any attention to me. We never think things like that about Jesus, but it happened in that day, you know. And uh, as they're going in, he's asking for alms, and Peter looks down at him and says, look at us. And he was expecting a coin to fly, probably. He said, silver and gold. Have I not, but that which I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And it says, Peter took him by the hand and pulled him up. And it says, at this point, as they're entering into the temple, the man is leaping and praising God and jumping. And again, the miracle, you have 40 years of legs that never moved immediately tendons are formed and neuropathways and muscles. You have to understand the miracle, you know. People that come through a surgery would have to spend months in some kind of therapy to try to, you know, this guy just gets up and it says all the people knew him. They knew of this guy. They had walked by him, you know, for years and all of a sudden here he is jumping around, praising God. And it says he's going into the temple. He had never been in the temple. Crippled people were not allowed in the temple. 
So it's his first time, imagine, his first time entering into the temple, and he's entering in with a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And certainly it's a picture of humanity crippled from birth, needing to be carried to be moved anywhere, begging and never coming up with the thing that satisfied, and then finally encountering Jesus and all that couldn't be healed in their lives by any therapy or any other, the miraculous things of all of that, all of a sudden working and coming together and leaping and praising, giving glory to Jesus, and then entering into the church or entering into gather of, of gathering of God's people for the first time. It's the picture we have. It brings us to verse 12, where it says, When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man walk, present tense, to be walking? So it says in verse 11, as the lame man which was healed, he held on to Peter and John. He wasn't letting go. All the people ran together. That's the it of verse 12, when Peter saw it. All the people running together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, and they're all greatly wondering. And then Peter, when he saw that, he saw it, he answered. They hadn't asked him anything. You know, people can ask you questions with their eyes and with their attitude and with their mouth hanging open. You can look at someone who's saying, what the heck is going on? You know, then it says Peter answers them. And remarkably, of course, Peter's Jewish is all very Jewish. So he answers them with two questions, which is which is typical of the, the environment there. And you know, how many people are there? It's not telling us how many days after Pentecost. Pentecost was a mandatory feast. No doubt many people, if 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost, many are staying in Jerusalem with friends or relatives. Uh, many then dispersed because Paul and, and these guys on their missionary journeys found groups of disciples all over the Roman world, no doubt that had this experience on Pentecost. But how many people are involved in this now? They're having favor with all the people. And evidently, people are coming. They're recognizing, is this a new Jewish sect? Is this a new branch of Judaism? You know, this Jesus, you know, what is this? And we know that as Peter now is going to address this crowd, however many there were there, it says 5,000, and it uses the word andron, males, 5,000 men are saved, plus women. I don't know who else, but 5,000 men are saved when Peter shares in this scene here. No wonder the Lord never healed that crippled guy and walked by him all those days. The guy was a plant. You know, God's timing was incredible. He had him sitting there waiting for this day because the Lord could have healed him and he would have been saved. But on this day, he saved and so are 5,000 others. And how many people heard? You know, when the Lord tells the parable of the sower, you know, it's one of the scenes like it's only 25% of the seed that brings forth lasting fruit. Were there 20,000 people there listening? Somehow 5,000 of them respond. So we move into this very interesting scene the church has had favor up until now, however short-lived that is. And now through the healing of this man, the church is going to begin to come under 
fire uh, by the religious community. Now, uh, it's interesting. Some of the Puritans, they always put together a study. It's called Peter near the fire, Peter on fire, and Peter in the fire. It's just good for you to remember. Peter near the fire, denying the Lord. Peter on fire, the day of Pentecost. And Peter under fire, here as he's brought before the religious leaders. He, he addresses them. He saw it. He saw them running together. He understands what's cooking here. And he answered. He spoke to them. It says, and he said, you men of Israel, here's the two wise. There's two wise. Why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye upon us so earnestly on us as though it's by our power holiness this man is made whole? He, he does something very specific clear, and you have to understand. Where it says, ye men of Israel, he literally says, you are Israelites. Why are you marveling at this? You're God, part of the Red Sea. You're, you, you know, you're God, you know, with Joshua made the sun and the, and the moon stand still in the Valley of Agilon. Your God made the the time clock go backwards, the sun, you know, and go backwards on the on the sundial. Your God, you know, defeated Egypt. Your God, why are you men of Israel? You're Israelites. Why are you marveling at this? Why are you freaked out by one crippled man who's healed? It's very interesting the way he sets the stage, Peter here, he says, why, you you Israelites, you men of Israel, why marvel at this? First question. Second, why are you looking so earnestly at us, me and John, as though by our own powers, anything to do with us or holiness, we made this man to be walking. And of course, People will always do that. People will always look at the instrument instead of looking at the the giver, the one who's working. They'll always look at the gift instead of the giver. You know, it's like this. You go through surgery, and when the surgery is over, the surgeon comes in to visit you. He saved your life, and you say, hey, is that scalpel around? that you slice me open with, I'd really like to thank that scalpel, you know. I'd really like to, you know, say thanks to that scalpel. And it wasn't the scalpel, it was the surgeon. And, and Peter's saying, what are you looking at us for? Like it was some power we, or holiness in our lives that this guy's standing here. What are you going to do with us? You know, it's so unlike some of the religious broadcasting today where the guy's walking around, you know, fancy schmancy and everything's about him and he's got a Rolls Royce in the parking lot and he needs more money to buy another plane and all this insanity. He doesn't have to do with Jesus. Look, you guys see that and you know that's weird, right? Just three of you? you got to be kidding. <laughs> Jesus said, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We study the word. You should be able to recognize that right away. I mean, before I was saved, when I took LSD, I knew those guys were weird. I can't, you can't be dumber after you get saved. So, you know, Peter and John said, what are you looking at us for? We, we didn't do this. It's not our powers. nothing in us that made this guy to be walking. The God of Abraham and of Isaac, the Israelites, and of Jacob... The God of our fathers hath glorified his son, Jesus. Now, Peter doesn't mess around or mince words here. It's really interesting to see this. He says, he's glorified his son, Jesus, whom you delivered and denied him in the presence of Pilate 
when he was determined to let him go. Pilate wanted to let him go, and you guys made sure that he got killed. You denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. So he said, what, you're, you're, you're standing around like you're not Israelites. You never saw a miracle before. What are you looking at us for? Like we have something to do with it. He said, you guys need to understand you're the ones who denied your own Savior. God wanted to glorify him. You're the ones who handed over to be killed when even Pilate didn't want to do anything with it. You're the ones who chose a murderer over the prince of life, the, the Greek there is the author of life, the founder of life, the originator of life. It's very strong. It's not the prince. The idea is life originated. All life has come by him and through him. John will say in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And that everything that was made was made through him and by him. So, so here, Peter, you know, he, he, he cuts to the chase. There's no, you know, cultural relevance. That's right, do any of that stuff here. He, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he says, hath glorified his son, Jesus. No, he's not trying to ease his way into that truth or anything. He says, whom you delivered up. And that's emphatic, whom you for yourselves delivered up. You did this. You delivered him up, and then you denied him in the presence of Pilate. You didn't want anything when he wanted to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the Just One, and instead you desired a murderer to be granted unto you, because they were going to murder him, so a murderer was what they wanted, and you killed, in contrast to a murderer, you killed the prince of life. Murderers take life. This one gives life. And you killed the prince, the author of life, whom God, it's always the center of their message, is whom God had raised from the dead. Now look, Peter's not being, I don't believe he's being hard on this crowd. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, and... The fruit of the Spirit is love. Twice Peter says, you denied him. And I think as Peter says that, he hears, you know, because he had denied him. He was a Jew. He was an Israelite. And he had denied the Lord of glory, the originator of life. He himself said, let me be eternally damned, anathema, if I know this man. And he pronounced a curse on himself. That's when the rooster crowed. So Peter's very sensitive to this, I think, when he's saying this to these people, because he has to be thinking, you know, you denied him, and you have less light than I had when I denied him. I had been with him for three years, walked with him, slept with him, talked with him, ate with him, watched him. I get out of the boat and walked on the water with him, and I denied him. So he says, you you followed in the suit. You did the same thing. You denied this holy one. And he said, even when Pilate wanted to let him go, you denied the Holy One, the Just One, and instead of desiring him, you desired a murderer to be granted unto you. It's insane. 
and you killed the originator of life. What irony. Whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. So now, Peter is still chopping off ears, but he's using a different sword at this point in time. It's the word of God, and he's hacking at the ears of their heart, no doubt, in this scene. And it says, and his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you see and know the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness, one of Luke's medical words, it means to be made completely sound, completely strong. By him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of, of you all. You know, it says this to us in Hebrews. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. He says here, he's the author and the finisher. It's what Peter's kind of hitting on that here. He says, it is in his name, through faith in his name, in the name of Jesus, hath made this man strong whom you see and know, yea, the faith which is literally by him or through him, Christ is part of that process, hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So, you know, you know this. There's a reality here that you touched on. You, you know, you know about Christ. He said that in his second sermon in chapter Two, and now he's saying, you've you, you got to understand this. In his name, it's, it's through faith, faith that's actually through him that this man is standing here. And now, brethren, he doesn't say you hypocrites. Now, brethren, and I love the King James, he says, I won't. That's a great word, isn't it? Elmer Fudd used to say that. I won't you a weta about that wabbit. No, that's not what it means here, right? He says, and now, brethren, I wot, it's oida, it's to know assuredly. I know completely that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. I know that more than anybody. I denied him. He had to come to me after the resurrection and talk to me. I know. That is through, I know it completely, through ignorance you did this. Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In fact, the tense is there is Christ kept saying that as they were nailing him. It wasn't once they propped the cross up. They were holding him down, they're driving the nails through his wrist, and as they're doing that, he keeps saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Peter says, I know for sure that it was an ignorance that you did this. You didn't know. I mean, look, how many friends do we have? We try to share Christ with them. You know, the, the, some of them mock. Some of them just shine us on. Some of them pat us on the back. Yeah, that's good for you. I'm glad. You know, I got, you know, uh, or we all love Jesus. You know, so any of those things. He's saying, I, I understand the ignorance that's attached to this. I understand the blindness of human beings. I walked with him for three years and didn't see who he was. So I understand, he says, 
that it was through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ, the Messiah, should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. God spoke about it before it took place through the mouth of his prophets, and then God is the one who made sure it was fulfilled. You did it in, ingr- in ignorance. God will use a righteous man. He'll use an ignorant man. He'll use a wicked man and accomplish certain things. So he says here, I know it was in ignorance, but you have to understand, this is what all your prophets, your Israelites spoke, that Messiah, when he come, he would suffer, and God has used you to make that be fulfilled, to be a reality. And look now his appeal to them. I think it's wonderful. He says, repent ye therefore, because there's life, because you did it ignorantly, because he was the author of life in your midst. He says, repent, metanoia, you know, just to turn away, ye therefore, be converted, is to make a U-turn, the, the word, the way it's, an about face, some of the Greek scholars say. He says, repent ye therefore, because this is true, because he died for you, and, and make a U-turn. Your life's been going away. You know, he used the word untoward in chapter 2 because so many unbelievers, that's their life, untoward. And he wants to turn us toward. He says here, and be converted, turn around, do it about face, that your sins may be, I like this, blotted out. Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar from Moody, says that your sins might be obliterated. I like that word. That's what I want to happen to my sins. I don't want to get to heaven there's any record there. I want them obliterated. That your sins might be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come as we step into the kingdom. It's interesting looking at this. And look, he's talking to religious people. Understand that their sins need to be obliterated. You know, if we time, sometimes we try to talk to our religious relatives and friends, they get offended. Peter's just letting it out here. And I don't think he's mean-spirited. He said that your sins may be obliterated when times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. If any of you are wondering when you're tired and you're worn out how you can find refreshing, Peter says, refreshing is in the presence of the Lord. Sometimes when we get alone with him, we're so overwhelmed with his presence, and we go, duh, why don't I do this every day? <laughs> you know, he, there's, a, there's refreshing in the presence of the Lord. He says, and he shall send Jesus Christ. No, let's talk about the second coming. Which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, wonderful word, until the times of of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, this word restitution of all things, it's only used twice in the Bible. The other time is in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when the disciples say to Jesus, is this when you're going to restore, that's our word restitution, the kingdom to Israel? 
And here, Luke uses it again. And by the way, it's a common word in the medical world of that day. And, and it had the idea of making everything correct, of making it the way that it should be. This word restitution, of complete healing and soundness. Whom the heaven must receive until the times of healing, complete soundness of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Hey, guys, there's a better time coming. There's a better age coming. You need to turn away from your sins now. You need to be converted so that, so that your sinful record can be obliterated because there's times of refreshing coming from the Lord. Heaven has received him for now, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, you want to be on the right side of this issue. If for some reason, I can't imagine, you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ. That's the deal. Died for you, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back soon. Because of all that all the prophets have said, it's all around us today. And he's returning because he loves us. And he's asking us deniers to repent and to be converted and to have our sins obliterated. So when those times of refreshing come to this world as Christ returns, we're partakers, we're participants by his grace on the right side of all of those things instead of being on the other side where we don't want to be. He says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Now there's thousands listening. We lose 5,000 are going to save. How many thousand are listening? And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. They knew about it. You remember when John the Baptist was doing his ministry, his preaching, the religious leaders came and say, they said, are you that one that should come? He's talking about the prophecy of Moses here. Or should we look for another? He said, no, I'm just a, a voice crying in the wilderness. He said, the one who's coming after me, the latchet of sandal, I'm not worthy to unloose and so forth. He's the one and he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost with fire and so forth. They knew. They're not strange to these ideas. This is all very Jewish t territory before we'll go to the Gentile world. And they understood that there was one coming after the likeness of Moses, but much different in his authority and his power. And he said, those who will not receive him shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets, notice from Samuel, evidently the first of the Old Testament prophets, we know Abel prophesied. There were others that prophesied, but the office of what was called then a seer, because they would see things spiritually, it seems Samuel is the first. Yea, all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days, these days of refreshing, these things would take place. And you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, 
And in thy seed, now Paul plays on it, and Galatians said, notice that seed singular, not seeds. And in thy seed shall all the kindreds, all tribes, not just Israel, in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. He said, you know this. Abraham said this. You're familiar with what he said. He understood there was one coming. There was a seed that was coming, an individual, a singular person that was coming. And God revealed that to him, and, it, and Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness as he, as he heard that and believed that. And then he says this in verse 26. He says, Now, unto you first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquity. So he says this here, unto you first, the Jew first, then the Gentile. It's going to spread through the Roman world. But he says, imagine what he's saying. Now look, you know that these words are powerful, as he's saying them, and you know everybody's hanging on his words because 5,000 are going to respond. No PA system, you know, uh, no rear screen projection. You know, I kind of have enjoyed The Chosen, but I watched the last one. They got Jesus ready to do the Sermon on the Mount with a stage and curtains. I'm thinking, come on, guys, get back to the Bible. What in the world is this? This is artistic license beyond license, you know. He says here, unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, he sent him to bless you. The reason he came into the world was to bless you. And and they're hanging on this because they've heard you killed him. You picked a murderer. You put to death the, the, the origin of life itself. And you chose a murderer for yourself. You did this. You denied him. You know, he drives the nail in. And then he brings this around to, and to unto you first, God having raised up his son, sent him to bless you. Jesus said the Son of Man didn't come in the world to, to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He said the problem is men love darkness, agape, darkness more than light. They're devoted to it. And men don't come to the light because when you come to the light, it reveals the fact that your deeds are evil. It's not physical light. It's just coming into a, a realm of honesty with your behavior and seeing it for what it is. Uh, and he's saying the same thing you send him to you first to bless you that blessing is in turning away every one of you from their iniquities so the idea of iniquities there is twistedness okay sin is something that happens because you're iniquitous because you're a twisted crew so then there's sin Transgression is when your sin manifests by deliberately stepping across the line. God draws a line in the sand and says, do not step across this line. And you trespass. You step across it. And you sin. That's because you're twisted. That's the idea. Your, your twistedness, your iniquity. He said, God sent his son into the world to bless you and to turn every one of you away from his twistedness, his iniquity. No chapter break, of course, when it was written. It says, and as they spake unto the people, now John must be saying something as well. It says, the priests 
and the captain of the temple, that's the captain of the temple guard or the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees, who were the ruling class of the day, came upon them. This is in an antagonistic way. And look what it says about them. They, being grieved that they taught the people and preached Jesus, through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Now, again, that's the Eknekron, the resurrection out from among the dead, which is a completely new idea to the Jews. They expected one general resurrection for the just and the unjust. Jesus is res- raised out from among the dead. Isn't that's what we're going to experience. Uh, he, sa- he said, this group of leaders now come. Before they had been in good standing. They had favor with all men. Now the crowds have grown to the point where thousands are there listening to them, and they're more popular than the religious leaders in the day, and there's always going to be some agita, you know, when that goes on. And uh, they say, come together, they bring the temple police with them, you know, the priests, and the Sadducees, you know, Annas and Caiaphas were both Sadducees. That was the ruling class. The Pharisees, when they had formed, had been a group that wanted to preserve the orthodoxy of the Old Testament, that it was the word of God, that it was inspired. So they had set up all these rules around it, and as time went by, it just became legalistic. You know, one of the problems in Israel today with Orthodox Jews is they study the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and they study the Talmud, all of the things written about those things. And they don't study the prophets. When they start to read the prophets, they get saved. So here, the Sadducees were even a step further back. The Sadducees embraced the first five books of Moses, but they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in afterlife. The, the, the way you remember them, that's, they always say that's why they're sad, you see, because they had no spiritual future. In fact, it tells us that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, these guys wanted to get their hands on Lazarus and kill him again. You think, what a bummer. Are you kidding me? You want to kill me because I got raised from the dead? Just cut me some slack, you know. And then, you know, he's going he's to, he's, you know, it's a bummer anyway that you get to die a second time. But So here is this ruling class. And because of their belief, they're grieved that, G, that the, they're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which they don't believe in. And by the way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is still probably the affront to religious prejudice and bigotry, intolerance, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of religiosity around us, much of it in the church, and they don't like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. I mean, you look at you know, look at Canada these days, burning down churches and throwing pastors that want to feed their flock into prison. You, you look at Europe, you just look at some of the religious leaders of the world, they don't want to hear about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. We're kind of now all becoming one big family, just like the it's the Christian Bitcoin of theology or something, you know. This is this is what we need to do. So religious intolerance always 
grates against the simplicity of the resurrection. Political, you know, ambition grates against the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they want to be in charge. And if there's a resurrection, they ain't in charge at all. And, you know, intellectual intolerance. You know, today that's woke. Everybody says woke. They don't even know what woke means or where it came from, I guarantee you. You're just afraid not to act cool because if, if you don't act cool, somebody's going to think maybe you're not woke. And, and, and you have to go home and ask your five-year-old, what does woke mean? Anyhow, I'm trying to be woke and I just know what it means. You know, the, the intellectual intolerance, the, the resurrection flies in the face of all of that stuff. So they're after now. They're coming after them now. They don't like the fact that they're preaching the resurrection. It's a different hope than, than the religious intolerance or the world or everybody else has. And they laid hands on them. This is not friendly. And they put them in hold. They put them under guard into custody until the next day. For it was now evening, so the day was ending. They wanted to now put them on trial and deal with them the next day. And it says, but how be it, many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men, males, the number of the men, plus are there women and children? No. The number of the men was about five Thousand. Now go back and read from verse 12 to where we just got to in the beginning of chapter 4 and think, what did he say that we don't know? What did he say that we might not say? The difference is the Holy Spirit. You know, here we are going through the book of Acts 54 times in the book of Acts. It mentions the Holy Spirit. Again, Tozier, you know. If the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, 95% of what we're doing would keep on going. Nobody would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit was removed from the church in the book of Acts, 95% of what they were doing would come to a screeching halt, and everybody would know the difference. Imagine taking things so simple as what Peter said. Under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they, it touches men's hearts. They're pierced. And five thousand people respond to that stuff we just heard that's so familiar to us. Lord knows in the day we're living in, everything going on around us, you Israelites, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in these last days. Or just get us out of here, Lord. You know, come down or go up, one or the other. If you're not going to anoint us and fill us afresh with your Spirit... Because the, 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 the cards are stacked against us. We're, 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 we're outmanned and outgunned intellectually, morally, socially, you know, technology. But something that can break all of that down is the love of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the Word of God. It can break it. It can mow it all down. And wouldn't it be wonderful to see that before the trumpet blows? Wouldn't it be wonderful to see some of the most antagonistic people you know get on TV and talk about Jesus instead of all the nonsense they've been talking about? And then they get thrown off the air and won't be able to do it anymore. But it'd be wonderful to see Zuckerberg, you know, see Dorsey, some of these people say, uh, I found Jesus. That would be the end of them. But it, wouldn't it be wonderful to see some of that? That's, that's what the world we're in needs. And look, again, I don't know what 
future you and I have in America, but I know America has no future without you and I. All of the other programs, all of the other political correctness, all of the other stuff that's going on, turn on the television. It's madness. It's madness. And I look at this and think, Lord, this is right up your alley. This is the Red Sea. This is you. You just love to stack the deck and then show us your glory. Lord, you need to do that. Would you do that? How many young people are completely lost? Uh, you know, a really nice guy came up to me, started coming to church. He said, look, I don't believe what you believe. He said, but I'm coming here because you all believe the same thing, whatever it is. He said, I'm so tired of the news. I'm so tired of the world. Everybody's fighting. Everybody's on a different page. Nobody believes the same thing. I don't believe what you believe, but it's comfortable here because at least everybody believes the same thing. And so I said, you need to come. We need to work through this. And I haven't seen him again. I hope you, Nick, I think his name is. I hope I would. I want to see him again and talk to him. He was brutally honest. And I really appreciate that. That's the, the insanity of the world we're living in. It's so wonderful to be studying the book of Acts and the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is keeping our heads lifted up. Redefining afresh for us our hope so we know it's not in this world. The book of Acts is telling us, hey, this, this church started. Paul tells us in Galatians that Jesus came forth in the fullness of time. It was the perfect timing. God sent him into an antagonistic religious world, a brutal Roman world, no First Amendment rights, no Second Amendment rights, the, the world that he sent him into crucified him and killed him. You know, all these apostles, but John, are going to be crucified and shot full of arrows and drugged behind chariots. They're all going to be martyrs. And God looked at it and said, that's the perfect world for the church. And I'm thinking, no, no thanks, Father. I want the correspondence course on this one, you know. But, it, but it's just so interesting to see the world that Peter's standing in and, it, and it's like, you know, when we read Billy Graham being filled with the Spirit and Moody and, and uh, Oswald Chambers, they said it wasn't that we said anything new at all, but the dynamic was so different. People flooded forward and accepted Christ. And in the book of Acts, again, told to wait till Jerusalem so they can be witnesses, martyrs, and you trace that word through the New Testament martyrs. In the book of Acts, it's always related to preaching the resurrection, not jabbering in tongues, preaching the resurrection of Jesus and how we need power to do that in a hopeless world, amen, that we're living in now. So he says, many of them that heard the word, faith comes by hearing, Hearing by the word of God, you look in the scene. There's no tongues. There's no fire on everybody's head. There's no healing. There's none of the stuff that took place on Pentecost. There is the word of God being preached. Many of them which heard the word of God believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. How big was the crowd? It's remarkable. And it came to pass... On the next day, and now you know the Sadducees are not happy, it says that their rulers and elders and scribes, this is the Sanhedrin, and Annas, 
Annas had been first appointed, was genuinely of the lineage of Aaron, but he was crooked. In fact, when Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers, they called that Annas's carnival or, or Annas's the tables of Annas because he had set it all up to make money. He was raking in the money. Caiaphas was a Roman appointee related to, I think, the nephew of Annas. The religious Jews respected Annas more than Caiaphas. Caiaphas was high priest till 36 AD after these things that we're looking at right here. So you got these two crooked cats, Annas and Caiaphas, in charge of the religious system of the day. They gathered together with the Sanhedrin. Now look, the Sanhedrin are 70 plus one, the high priest. So there are 71 that gather with the Sanhedrin. They gathered in semicircle, in a semicircle fashion, with multiple tiers that went up. And Peter and John are going to have to stand in the midst of that. Jesus stood in the midst of some of these scenes as well. So it says, with this crowd, rulers, scribes, elders, it says, and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and then we're not sure of this, and John and Alexander, and it says, and as many as were the kindred of the high priest. So it seems that John and Alexander are relatives of the high priest that are there as well. They were kindred of the high priest. They were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now you look at this. This is the most august group of religious leaders on the planet. It was remarkable, of course, when Jesus came to Nicodemus because Nicodemus was, you know, of all of the, the religious system of the day, he was the man. Jesus said, art thou the teacher in Israel? Paul studied under Gamaliel, but if you went to Jerusalem and wanted to study theology, everybody wanted to get in Nicodemus' class. And around Nicodemus you had, you know, 22,000 Pharisees, I don't know how many Sadducees, thousands of priests, you know, this religious system on the planet which had more truth than any other religious system on the planet, but had become corrupt. And in the center of it, you have these individuals, priests, rabbis, and so forth. And then in the center of that, you have Nicodemus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're never going to see the kingdom unless you're born again. He's not saying it to a prostitute. He's not saying it to a murderer. He's saying to Nicodemus. And it says here, now, all these religious guys are gathered from all over. This is the 71 of them and, and their relatives, the most august, intimidating religious group on earth, all gathered against two fishermen. And it wasn't fair. Because Peter and John way outclassed them, you know. You know, they had the Holy Ghost. The rest of this was just chatter. It was just noise. And, and it says, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have he done this? By the way, that's a legitimate question. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, first five verses, told Israel of old, when you come into the land, if anybody does signs or wonders, anybody does anything, you find out how that happened. You know, and if they're pointing you to another god, if they're saying it's somebody else, kill him. It was, it was a fast, easy system. 
no appeals. So, so they're, they're, they're legitimate in asking the question. You know, they're legitimate saying, you know, how have you done this? By what power or what name have you done this? Verse 8 is beautiful. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are being examined for the good deed done to the crippled man, and by what means he is made whole, then you need to understand, I'll tell you if that's what you want to know, and all the people that in Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, and he says of Nazareth, the Nazarene, which they despise, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. What an interesting picture. You know, Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the Greek says, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The class condition is it's a fresh new filling that's happening right then. Jesus told him, look, when you guys are drug in front of rulers and counselors, don't take any thoughtful, you know, don't, don't get ulcers worrying about what you're going to say because in that very hour you'll be given the things that you should say. And here's Peter now living in the middle of the very things that Jesus told them would happen. And it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a fresh anointing. Doesn't say he lost any of the Holy Ghost from Pentecost. Doesn't say he was running out of gas. You know, <laughs> Moody made that joke. He, he, after he got filled with the Holy Spirit, he would always talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And someone said to him, Mr. Moody, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, why do you keep talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit? He said, I leak. You know, but there's no evidence theologically. Peter has not been diminished at all, but there is a filling that is in keeping with the present situation. And there always will be in our lives as well. We're never going to be put on the spot for the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that God will refuse to give us what we need at that hour. Whether it's a friend or a relative or a classmate, if, if we genuinely want to glorify the Lord, it'll be given to us then. Here's Peter, who had cowered before, you know, a milkmaid in the, you know, in the high priest's house before. A little girl said, you're one of them. He said, you know, he cares and said, no, I'm not one. Here he is now standing in front of that whole group that he was so intimidated with. The difference, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's born again. Peter being filled at that moment, having been filled afresh with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, and, and you know, there's no antagonism here. He says, Ye men, um, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, you're not being antagonistic, if we this day are being examined for a good deed. Are you really putting us on trial for doing something good? Are you really taking us to trial because a, a crippled man is, is, is healed? If we this day are examined for the good deed to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, he says, be it known unto you all, and, and that phrase there, you all, is 
plural. He's talking to the whole group. Be it known unto you all that to all the people and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised again out from among the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. It's taken place because of that. And he says, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Psalm 118, Psalm 110, there's Messianic Psalms that talk about these things. Um, You know, Paul says to the Jew, Jesus Christ was a stumbling stone. Because they had kept the law, they had kept the feast, they had kept the dietary, and all of a sudden they're hearing, you can get saved just by turning to him. Gentiles can be saved. So he's a stumbling stone to the Jews. He's going to be, Daniel 2 tells us, a smiting stone to the nations. He finally says, I see this stone turns into a mountain. It comes and it crushes all of the powers of this world. And and it grows into a great mountain. A new kingdom is established. So that's what he's going to be. That's what he is to the Jew. It's what he's going to be to this world. But for you and I, it says here, he's the chief cornerstone. Our lives should be built off of him. What do you do? You know, as a husband, you know, ain't no bluffing at home, right? I mess up there. I do. As a husband, am I measuring my role off of the cornerstone or off of the circumstances? All marriage problems are lordship problems. So when I'm confessing Kathy's sins to her and she's confessing mine to me, we have a problem, right? But if I'm willing to be the Lord's husband, not hers, if I'm willing to be the Lord's husband in the marriage, then my behavior is not determined by her response, but by my Savior, and vice versa. Parenting. Are we measuring our lives off the chief cornerstone? Are we understanding that we're not left in the lurch? We're not left, yeah, we look like we're outgunning out man in the sense of social media, but kids want to know what's real too. They have a baloney meter, and they know what's phony and what's not. He's the chief cornerstone, smiting stone for the unbeliever, stumbling stone for the Jew. But for you, and I, he's the chief cornerstone. He gives us direction for our lives. Tells us, sits within the morning when we have devotion. His his presence sits there. He tells us what to do with our jobs and our homes and our neighbors. Are we measuring our lives off of him? A, A living relationship with the risen Savior. Peter is placing that in front of him, and certainly the Holy Spirit who wrote this is placing it in front of us. This is the stone which is set of naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Just that kind of cut, cut and clear, isn't it? Neither is there salvation in any other. It flies in the face of political correctness. It flies in the face of globalism. It flies in the face of political fanatics. I want to tell you this. There's not salvation. There's not deliverance in any other name. Not Putin, not Benjamin, not, you, not, not Trump, not Biden. There's no, there's no deliverance in any other name than Jesus Christ. 
It, and that flies in the face of political power because they're going to start looking down on us because we believe in a risen Savior and we find our hope somewhere else. And our obedience is not to the government, though we want to be good citizens. We want to keep the law and worse reason. But And Peter told us to do that. Paul told us to do that who were both put to death by the government for not doing it. But when you say there's only one name, because they want a they want a globalism, they want a global religiosity, they want everybody to get along, whether you worship Buddha or Muhammad or you know Zoroaster or whatever you do, you know we're all one big happy religious family, and all roads lead to God, and they do. You just don't want to be on the wrong one, because some of the roads lead to the great white throne. You don't want to go there. You don't want to meet God as judge. You want to see him face to face as Savior. And that's what he wants. It says he sent his son to bless. That's the whole program on God's God's side. There's not salvation in any other. He's made it that simple, right? I mean, we look at this whole vaccine thing. What if somebody came up with a real vaccine that nobody had questions about. And we realized, ah, this is it. This is the one that works. Nobody gets sick from it. Everybody gets better from it. Nobody would say, eh, it's too narrow. I, I want to get better some other. I, I want to drink carrot juice and, uh, and overcome this. You know, I bought a juicer watching those things on TV. And, uh, and nobody would do that. You give somebody the cure for cancer, they're going to be in, in, in line around the block to get it. And they're going to say it's too narrow. So people are saying, you're saying there's only one name whereby we, in England now, England will not allow anything on the radio that speaks about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he's the only one. So broadcasters have to go 50 miles off the shore to preach a message about the gospel into England. Canada has thrown out focus from the family and all of these guys preaching the gospel. So they have to set up towers on the American side to broadcast into Canada. I mean, the world is so crazy, it's lost its mind. And it isn't too narrow. Oh, there's only one name? No, no, here's the remarkable thing. Not that that there's only one name. The remarkable thing is that there is a name. That's the remarkable thing. There actually is a name. There's a cure. There's a a vaccination. There's an answer to our emptiness and our sin. It isn't remarkable that there's only one. It's remarkable there is one. And it's so simple that a child can take advantage of it. There's one name given among men whereby we must, that's emphatic, we must. The idea is this is the only way. There ain't any other way. It must come this way. Jesus himself prayed in Gethsemane. He said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. But if not, not my will, but thy will be done. If there's any other way for the sin of mankind to be forgiven, Father, I don't want to you know, jump into this. But if not, not my will, but thine be done. It says here, This is the name given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name under heaven. It doesn't bother me. I like the name Jesus. I kind of like to say it before I go to bed when I get up in the morning. I kind of like to to sit with him and experience his presence and know that he's my Savior and that he loves me. 
that he sees no flaw in me because it was taken care of 2,000 years ago on the cross. That he can tell me I'm justified because of what he did. I'm sanctified because of what he's doing. And I'm glorified because he's already there, past, present, and future. This, this is like more than I can comprehend. This is enough for the rest of my life. I'm growing in grace and the knowledge of who he is. The rest of my life, I'm hearing Paul say, you know, my prayer is that you might, you know, take hold of the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of God's love towards you in Christ Jesus. Jesus prays in John 17, Father, you know, I'm praying that they might know that thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. You can sit with that for the rest of your life. Jesus, what are you saying? That almighty, holy God in heaven has loved us with the same love he loved you with? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying because his righteousness is on us. His spirit is in us crying, Abba, Father. If it's not real to us, how are we going to infect the lost world around us with the love of God? If it can't be shed abroad from our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, how are we going to be effective? It ain't an intellectual exercise. People want to argue about theology and all this stuff. That ain't going to happen. It's not going to solve anything. We should have our own systematic theology. That's good and it's important. But the most profound theology there is is a personal relationship with the risen Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That ain't get any better than that. Amen? So look. Read ahead. I'm going to have the musicians come. Read ahead. Be familiar with the territory that we're heading into. It's remarkable. I would say make a regular part of your prayer. Lord, I need a fresh filling of your spirit. If Peter needed one, I need one. Lord, fill me afresh. Again, spirit-filled Christian is a condition, not a title. And wonderfully, we can be filled daily, fresh. Ask the Lord, you know. Um, and let's do that right now before we leave. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, I know you've overheard. Um, we know that how could a crowd like this ever be gathered together if something supernatural wasn't happening? Lord, each of us know there are people in this room we would never hang out with. We would never hug. Lord, we would never be caught uh, with, Lord. And yet you've broken all that down and you've taught us to love one another. You've drawn us together, Lord. And the only reason we could possibly be here, Lord, is because of your will. And we as well believe it's your will for us, Lord, to be witnesses in these days. And Lord, we recognize we can never do that in our own strength, in our own wisdom. So we ask, Lord, as you told the disciples then, to wait until they were endued with power to be witnesses, Lord. Fill us afresh with your spirit, Lord. We ask that he would come upon us in new measures, Lord. We think of our wives and our husbands, our children, our grandchildren, our mothers and fathers, our classmates. Lord, the people we work with, the people we rub shoulders with in the university, Lord. Our professors and our fellow students, whatever it might be, Lord. We don't want, Lord, to try to take hold of all of that in the energy of the flesh, Lord. Let us have that deep satisfaction every morning, Lord, of your presence, refreshing there.
And knowing, Lord, that we're marching off uh, with the day's marching orders filled with your spirit, that the love of Christ can be shed abroad from our hearts by that power. And, Lord, let us be contagious. Let us be much more contagious than COVID, Lord. Let more people be infected with your love than anything that's going on, Lord. We can't do it on our own, Lord. As we lift our voices now in this song, Lord, we pray that it would be a united prayer that we'd be singing, but we'd all be agreeing, Lord, lifting our hearts before you. And we do pray, Lord, you fill us afresh. You said, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? So, Lord, we're asking. Hear our hearts now. Hear our voices now, Lord. We lift this up to you, Lord Jesus. We do pray in your name and for your glory, Lord. We love you. Amen.